Economic calculation does not require monetary stability in the sense in which this term is used by the champions of the stabilization movement. The fact that rigidity in the monetary unit's purchasing power is unthinkable and unrealizable does not impair the methods of economic calculation. What economic calculation requires is a monetary system whose functioning is not sabotaged by government interference. The endeavors to expand the quantity of money in circulation, either in order to increase the government's capacity to spend, or in order to bring about a temporary lowering of the rate of interest, disintegrate all currency matters and derange economic calculation. The first aim of monetary policy must be to prevent governments from embarking upon inflation and from creating conditions which encourage credit expansion on the part of banks. But this program is very different from the confused and self-contradictory program of stabilizing purchasing power. For the sake of economic calculation, all that is needed is to avoid great and abrupt fluctuations in the supply of money. Gold, and up to the middle of the 19th century, silver, served very well all the purposes of economic calculation. Changes in the relation between the supply of and the demand for the precious metals, and the resulting alterations in purchasing power, went on so slowly that the entrepreneur's economic calculation could disregard them without going too far afield. Precision is unattainable in economic calculation, quite apart from the shortcomings emanating from not paying due consideration to monetary changes. Incidentally, no practical calculation can ever be precise. The formula underlying the process of calculation may be exact. The calculation itself depends on the approximate establishment of quantities and is therefore necessarily inaccurate. Economics is an exact science of real things. But as soon as price data are introduced into the chain of thought, exactitude is abandoned and economic history is substituted for economic theory. The planning businessman cannot help employing data concerning the unknown future. He deals with future prices and future costs of production. Accounting and bookkeeping, in their endeavors to establish the result of past action, are in the same position, as far as they rely upon the estimation of fixed equipment, inventories, and receivables. In spite of all these uncertainties, economic calculation can achieve its tasks. For these uncertainties do not stem from deficiencies of the system of calculation, they are inherent in the essence of acting that always deals with the uncertain future. The idea of rendering purchasing power stable did not originate from endeavors to make economic calculation more correct. Its source is the wish to create a sphere withdrawn from the ceaseless flux of human affairs, a realm which the historical process does not affect. Endowments which were designed to provide in perpetuity for an ecclesiastic body, for a charitable institution, or for a family, were long established in land or in disbursement of agricultural products in kind. Later annuities to be settled in money were added. 
endowers and beneficiaries expected that an annuity determined in terms of a definite amount of precious metals would not be affected by changes in economic conditions. But these hopes were illusory. Later generations learned that the plans of their ancestors were not realized. Stimulated by this experience, they began to investigate how the aims sought could be attained. Thus they embarked upon attempts to measure changes in purchasing power and to eliminate such changes. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Uh, this is your what, like fifth annual podcast for 2022. <laughs> We're catching up. It's, it's like uh, 2018 all over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do think that there's something to be said for only creating content during bear markets. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, uh, this is uh, your co-host, Pierre Rochard. I'm joined here with Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. Michael, what's going on? Uh, you know, just, uh, just a lot of work and w- waiting for Moon. But, uh, you know, we've been this patient. We've been waited. We've been waiting, what, uh, you know, eight years for hyper-Bitcoinization? Like, we can wait another 20. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, that that does open up the debate, though, about, um, like, one view is we're living in hyper-Bitcoinization already, right? That, um, uh, you know, when people are saying, oh, $20,000 is like a horrible bear market, it's like, wow, hyper-Bitcoinization already happened. <laughs> <laughs> because five years ago, $20,000 was a euphoric top. So uh, it just uh, puts things in perspective. Right. And then there's, of course, the, the the idea that suddenly, like, one day everyone just, like, wakes up and becomes a Bitcoiner. Um, I tend to subscribe more to the, the former, actually, uh, despite me making jokes going both ways. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the latter is, like, Hey, you know, there's going to be an inflection point, right? Where um, essentially people panic out of the dollar, and I think that's true as well, right? I think that both both have solid arguments in their favor. Um, it's it's that uh, yeah, we can't predict when the inflection point is. It I will say, I would have thought the inflection point would be sooner, but maybe that's just my high time preference. Uh, you know, monkey brain. Well, it's just it's just so obviously a superior currency that it can be uh, difficult to grapple with how slow economies actually move. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like it's a reverse crack up boom is basically what it is. Um, I think, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, for good reason, they they credit Daniel's article, Hyper Bitcoinization, and they talk about that. Um, but I think it's also interesting to go back further than that. There was an article uh, prior to that by Conrad Graf um, about hyper monetization, and it was basically uh, imagining this sort of reverse um, process instead of you know a money collapsing. What happens when you have actual monetization? And yeah, it's like you know you you could think of uh, inflation has always been going on. You have two percent inflation, and then you know one day they decide to print a third of the money. Um, and, and we also see sort of similar things in prices and inflation is something that is, is boiling the frog slowly. It starts to ratchet up more and more because this thing, you know, it becomes untenable. The, the heroin addicts have to get their next fix. Um, and then eventually it has to come to the point where, um, it goes up so much, um, out of necessity 
and the the people lose complete faith in it. So they um, they they want to get rid of uh, those units of currency as fast as possible, and that's that's the crack up boom. And yeah, hyper Bitcoinization. I mean, it is happening incredibly fast, but at the same time, as as these sort of feedback loops emerge, we could also imagine a time where um, everything comes together in such a way that things happen faster than you can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, there's like there, there, in my mind, there's, there's three, three parts to it. One, the education, the learning curve for somebody to kind of fill in the information asymmetry from, okay, Bitcoin is just tulips and it's worthless to, okay, Bitcoin's the next monetary system. So that, you know, requires quite a bit of uh, uh, thinking, uh, so, some, some mental proof of work. Um, the other is the people who have adopted Bitcoin in the past and hold Bitcoin. I'm not even going to necessarily call them Bitcoiners, but people who happen to hold Bitcoin um, who make you know massive increases in the purchasing power of those Bitcoin. Uh, and their incentive is to go sell their Bitcoin um, and, you know, buy a, a yacht or pay off their parents' mortgage or donate to the charity of their choice. You know, how, however noble or ignoble the, their motive is. And so that puts massive sell pressure on the other side, right? Like Bitcoin's price can't go up that quickly because of all these people who are getting wealthy. Um, and then on top of that, you've got, of course, the new Bitcoin being added to the ledger through the mining process and the downward pressure on the price from that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you recently, um, I guess it was actually earlier this week, you had the honor of participating in a Soho forum debate at the uh, esteemed Ludwig von Mises Institute in Alabama, um, in which you were kind of arguing a lot on these these very topics. Um, do you want to tell us about that experience? Like, did you enjoy it? I'm sure you did. Um, <laughs> yeah. Despite yeah. Not, not getting the, uh, the win. Yeah, so uh, I, took the L. I took the L, uh, you know, um, so I did enjoy it tremendously. Um, and it was my first time at the Institute. I, I had been consuming their content since like 2005. Um, I remember downloading Walter Block uh, uh, lectures from their website as MP3s and drag and dropping them into my iPod. Right. That's what we were doing back then, kids. Um, no touch screen. Yeah. No touch screen. Just a, a scroll wheel. Yeah. Good times. Um, and a hard drive inside of it. <laughs> Don't the, drop your iPod. You'll there see. wasn't even Bitcoin. That was the before Bitcoin times. Yeah, Pre-Bitcoin times uh, when it was just a glimmer in the eye of Satoshi. <laughs> uh, post Bitgold. <laughs> Nobody. I don't know. I, I didn't know about Bitgold back then. <laughs> but uh, um in any case, um, they they're the ones who turned me into a uh, gold bug uh, and a hundred percent reserve uh, you know, uh, fanatic uh, <laughs> dogmatist. Um, and um, this was my first time actually going to the Institute. So it was just amazing to me um, to, to be invited to 
to speak to debate um it was really like not how i was expecting to go to the institute i was expecting to go either as a student in college or uh maybe as a trespasser you know after college uh hey let, let me in <laughs> um and um yeah there there was like a hundred uh students there from Mises university and i know that you're an alumnus of Mises university twice twice wow amazing um do you want to tell us about your experience at uh, Mises Institute? Uh, yeah, I mean, so that I, I went um, 2012, 2013, um, and it's just an, it was incredible. Um, I I did not get into it quite as early as you, but not too much longer after. Um, so I had been a you know anarcho capitalist of the Rothbardian sort uh, for for quite a, few, uh, a number of years before I got to go there. And going there, it's like all the all the professors that I uh, had had grown to admire um, through their writings um, were all present, and I got to meet all of them and, and talk with them directly and, and learn from them. And uh, you know, just <laughs> being being somewhere where pretty much everyone is some flavor of you know Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist uh, is is quite an experience uh, for someone who has not experienced that before. Um, to, to actually have that many like-minded people. I think Bitcoiners are kind of used to that feeling now. Um, they, they've experienced Bitcoin. Um, but uh, yeah, and actually the, the second time was there, I was there was after I had become a fanatic Bitcoiner. And so I was spending um, my entire time there just uh, shilling wall to wall. Um, and that's actually around where uh, Bitstein really uh, clicked as a, uh, as a moniker. Yeah. So... Um, that, that was a lot of fun. And I actually, there, you know, um, there was a lot of pushback um, for various reasons. Uh, I think I was right for uh, for all of it, but it, it was interesting seeing um, what kind of push the back there was. A lot of a lot of libertarian Bitcoiners are extremely frustrated with, um, you know, people like those at the, at the Mises Institute because they sense that, you know, oh, why aren't you on board? Um, but it was really nice to actually, you know, be up close and personal uh, about these topics to get, to get a real sense of, of what the hangups were. Um, some of them were more surprising than others. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, over, over time, I think many of them have actually um, very much uh, come to be more sympathetic with our view. Uh, you know, uh, Jeff Dice has hosted uh, Safety uh, many times and uh, as has uh, Tom Woods and others. So. Um, you know, we've become a, a part of the discussion. And I think that's great. And I think the other thing to note there is that the Mises Institute, while there is this obvious affinity for gold, it's primarily dedicated to praxeological thinking, which ultimately has nothing to say about the empirical choice of which money. It only tells us what good money is. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, you know, there's not necessarily a need for them to uh, t take a stand, although I think there's good arguments as to why uh, they might want to and why they maybe should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that um, they, you know, they're not an investment research company, right? Like they're not here. And thank God. To, yeah, to tell people uh, what to do uh, with their capital. Um, and that's really so. So the debate was with Keith Weiner, 
And the prompt was gold will remain an important form of money in the 21st century. And um, Keith was taking the affirmative. I was taking the negative. And when I was thinking about what, how do I want to structure my, my case? Um, I really thought about it from the perspective of the audience, which is, um, you know, Austrian school economists and um, really keen on advancing our understanding of monetary economics rather than um, honestly than winning the debate, but even, you know, like of persuading people to invest in Bitcoin or anything like that. Um, because I think that it, 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 we've thought a lot about regression theorem, you know, uh, why, why Bitcoin, why not cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, uh, why Bitcoin maximalism? Why winner take all? Um, and I've even heard of some people refer to us as monetary maximalists. Um, and it's so um, tying it back to the Austrian perspective, you know, we, we've often uh, promoted this little article, uh, the Yield on Money Held Revisited by Hoppe. And that's where I started my uh, argument is um, really kind of highlighting two different definitions of money. One is the traditional Austrian definition, which is it's the most saleable, marketable good. Um, you know, it's the one that can be employed for instant satisf satisfaction of widest range of possible needs. So it's really um, like, and, and, you know, with with Holzman's caveat of in the free market, right? Um, the, the, at least for ethical money, I could say unethical money, the dollar, for example. Uh, but in any case, um, I, this definition is really looking at the equilibrium outcome, right? It's looking at like today, what is it? It's not really a dynamic process oriented definition of what qualities would result in a good achieving this final status. Um, and, you know, not that anything's final, right, in, in human action, but uh, that it would at least, uh, you know, for for a period of time, uh, become the most saleable good. And this is where, like, if if we take Papa's argument seriously of people hold money to hedge against future uncertainty, then in my mind, the logical um, number one property you'd want to have for a monetary system is minimizing uncertainty. And all of its properties or all of its features, you know, how, how people actually use it um, should be analyzed through that lens. Uh, and this is kind of more of a deontological definition of money, of money is whatever um, is the least uncertain good. Uh, and it might not be the most saleable today, just purely due to information asymmetry, but that you know, if we believe in the market process, uh, then it would emerge as the most saleable uh, good. Right. The, the the marketability and saleability is kind of just uh, describing what the market found had those qualities. And we know that's what it was choosing because that's the whole point of 
choosing that good in the first place. Um, that being said, it doesn't necessarily tell us with, you know, apoptictic certainty that a particular good will become that thing because, uh, you know, there's, there's many dimensions that we look on. And we see this within the, the Bitcoin versus crypto debates where someone says, oh, well, our coin is faster. You know, and they, they make up something about how their, their transactions are faster. And, you know, our argument to that is like, that's nice, but it comes at these trade-offs. And so Bitcoin doesn't immediately have what necessarily seems like the, the optimal trade-offs, and yet it kind of is. And we've seen throughout the, the history of, of, you know, these, these cryptocurrencies since Bitcoin um, that that has been the case. Um, and it is very well possible that there, uh, you know, for instance, gold on some like giant matrix of these, these uh, trade-offs actually has some different balance. But it's still ultimately answering the question in the sense that you're putting it. And I, I think that is a, a very good framing for thinking about this uh, debate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so with that framework in place, I went through comparing Bitcoin and gold. And, um, you know, I think so like the the traditional um, uh, set of properties that economists look like look at is like is it divisible is it durable is it transportable is it scarce is it fungible and those are fine i just find them to be um kind of um oddly removed from how people use money right so in my mind it's like it's even simpler than that it's that they they receive it they hold it and then they send it. And so then we can actually look at, you know, in, in product terms, like what's the user experience and um, how much uncertainty is there at every step of the way within receiving it, holding it and sending it. Um, that way we can compare uh, the overall uncertainty of these systems against each other and perhaps have, and it's, it's you know, this analysis is not praxeological in the sense that it's it's really about entrepreneurial uh, prediction, right? Of an entrepreneurial assessment of uh, the products rather than uh, kind of me like saying, hey, you know, if you want to do good praxeology, then you have to adopt uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> you have to, you know, believe in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think those um, those properties. I mean, they're great. They they do describe real phenomenon, but. To actually understand the purpose of it, you have to go back to that uncertainty. So like um, divisibility, well, if I have, have future uncertainty and I want to uh, disease myself of, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, if, I want, if I want to remove that, uns uh, sorry, I'm, I'm tripping over my words here. If I'm going about in the economy and I, I had future uncertainty, so I was holding cash, and then I come across an item and I want to be able to buy it. Um, but it's a, you know, it's, it's just like a, a pack of gum or something like that. And I'm carrying around a big bar of gold. Uh, that divisibility is not there. And so I can't, I can't make use of, make use of that uh, hedge that I had because it's not usable in that, in that situation. However, if instead I had the divisibility in the sense of, well, I can carry around gold coins and maybe I have one small enough for a pack of gum 
now I have the capacity to um, actually make that trade. Um, and so you're, you're saying, I want to be able to make trades at many different sizes. Um, and, and Bitcoin is obviously very good at this because of its extreme divisibility and its ease of, of sort of smelting into smaller and larger quantities. You can have UTXOs down to like, I guess, almost like, I guess down to the dust limit if you want to play nice with the network. Um, and as large as, you know, techni technically, actually Bitcoin Optech had a, had a reference to a question of how would you consolidate all UTXOs and how long it would take. You could theoretically have a single Bitcoin UTXO. Um, that's just like the whole thing. Um, that's where it started. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's an example there. And then like transportability is I want to be able to, you know, uh, make use of that hedge uh, against the uncertainty here and across the globe. Yeah. Um, and so what you're describing is, you know, and this is this is also like this is not us just coming up with things. Uh, we might be using slightly different terminology, but this is this is what Menger was saying back in the 1880s, um, which is basically you have all of these different dimensions that trade is occurring on. And um, a, a good monetary good has to be able to address all of these. And, and kind of the, the outcome of that is, yeah, we can point to these, these specific kinds of property, but we're saying that underneath that fundamentally is hedging against future uncertainty. And those properties are describing uh, the different ways that we, we go about that and what, what makes it useful uh, to do that. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the focus on uh, minimizing uncertainty helps us avoid traps like focusing on convenience, right? So then people are like, oh, well, the most convenient monetary system will win. And, you know, that's going to be uh, something that is um, reversible, for example. It's like, yeah, but hold on. Reversibility massively expands. Uh, the uncertainty of the monetary system. Um, so um, in terms of comparing gold and uh, Bitcoin, the first comparison I made was about verifying the gold that you receive versus the Bitcoin that you receive. And I think that this one, I, I like in particular because, you know, this is the noted Bitcoin podcast. We're talking about Bitcoin nets. Um, and I was doing some research on uh, gold verification. Um, so you can assay the surface of a gold bar. Um, you can melt a gold bar down and assay a simple, a sample of it, you know, mixed up. Um, but, uh, you know, both, both those are very, it depends on what product you're using in particular, but they're expensive and, you know, you got to do it for every gold bar or whatever. Um, and then the other thing that I found interesting was that if you just test the surface of a gold bar and you find it to be real gold, the next step is to do a sonogram using the same sonogram machine that, uh, you know, are used on pregnant women to uh, see the baby. So uh, th because this allows you to see if there's, you know, a tungsten insert uh, in the middle of the bar or something like that. And so, you know, you're talking about not only... Um, serious amounts of money, but just like the logistical difficulty, the operational difficulty of doing this. Um, and critically, 
even if you do it, you're not verifying the total supply. And so you still don't know what percentage of the total above ground Bitcoin or sorry, total above ground gold supply uh, that you are uh, receiving. And you never will be able to like it's just a um, it's not 10 times better. It's like categorically different uh, than, uh, you know, what you can do with a Bitcoin node than uh, what you can do with a, a gold sonogram. Um, now, the other thing, too, is that it's automated. It's cryptographic. You don't need to hire anyone to do it for you. Uh, you don't need like a, a room to do it in or a I don't even think about it. it. Yeah. It's it's happening right now in my home and I don't even it just doesn't even cross my mind because it's just it's all automated happens. It's it's I don't want to say it's trivial because a lot of work went into um, producing the Bitcoin software, but in some sense it, it that all that work has made something that is extremely trivial. Yeah. For for the end user. Absolutely. Um because no, if, if you're running like the, if you're doing like the all, all the processes you're describing to is say, you know, the surface of the gold, the sonogram, it's like you need skilled technicians just to go operate that stuff. Um, that doesn't even sound like something I, I would personally be able to do, let alone, you know, my my grandparents or something. Um, meanwhile, like it is feasible for them to run some software on, on their computer and, and get that going so that the accessibility as a technician. Um, is just <laughs> incredibly different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, Keith's rebuttal to this was uh, he had a gold coin with him. And uh, so he he dropped it on the table and he said, it makes a sound that is unique to gold. And I don't know. I On one hand, I found it charming. But on the other hand, I was like, this is this is kind of silly. Like, what are you, what are you talking about here? That you, are you going to start dropping gold bars around? Like, um, and that sounds like, like a old guy at the bar in like early 1900s or something. This is, this is the real money. And like those down, it's just like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quaint. Yeah. And, and it, it doesn't like, get to the heart of the matter. It's um, a and, what, like thousand dollar coin. And you know, you're, you're going to verify it by just uh, seeing what sound it makes. I, well, and that's that's a thousand dollar coin. What what happens? And I think a lot of these discussions, you know, because you know, we're just talking about like divisibility, and yeah. we're talking about this UX and stuff. A lot of our ideas often come in the form of thinking about like us as like normies, um, just you know, normal people with normal amounts of economic activity. Um, but to have the economy that we have, one one that gives us all of the 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 fruits that we enjoy. It's a very large scale, and uh, a lot of these economies of scale, these these large firms that that produce all of these things, um, you know, various like wealthy people, uh, and and the, like capitalists, they're not necessarily just dealing with small gold coins. They actually there there are people out there who do sign checks for hundreds of millions of dollars, and those people also need like it, they also need to reduce uncertainty, not just us. And so that's very nice to do with a small gold coin. Like, cool, you can get your pint of beer, um, you know, in a previous time when that was that was how I you mean, could afford it. But talking like several kegs of beer. Um, <laughs> the other thing too is, that, yeah, good. Uh, but but now, like, just you know, that's a that's a coin. Yeah. 
what, what about when like you're you're doing like a massive a massive trade of like you know oil or something like that and you're doing like millions of barrels of oil and you're trying to to assess the the validity of validity of that transaction this is not you can't you can't go and drop all of those bars of gold to to hear the sound that's just not feasible that's right and what they do instead is that there's the lbma uh london bullion metals association or whatever the acronym is and they certify vaults and so you can move gold between these certified vaults uh, and so that way you only need to verify the gold once coming into the system. Um, and it's kind of just like a federated model. Um, and, you know, once again, going back into the issue of being centralized um, and even at the smaller scale, like, OK, if it's true that it is easy to verify gold, why are there so many websites warning about counterfeit gold? Right. Logically, wouldn't we expect that there is no counterfeit gold because nobody would bother doing that because it's easy to verify gold? Right. Like it, it just like it's all it, falling on deaf ears. They, they can't hear the sound. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. On top of that, it's not very accessible to the deaf. <laughs> um, I didn't want to make a joke about uh, ableism and privilege, but uh, yeah. Um, so. That was interesting. Uh, the next one was uh, about storage, right? So storing gold versus storing Bitcoin. Um, and a good home vault or safe costs about $6,000. And uh, you can store your gold in one location. And it is rated to withstand attack by power tools for 30 minutes. Uh, it's accessible even if you are dead, right? Because the home invader could just kill you and then use power tools for 30 minutes. Um, and you can't plead the fifth, right? So if the government comes in with a search warrant, they can blow open your safe. Uh, they don't need your password for the safe, uh, because side channel attack, you know? Um, now the counter on the Bitcoin side that I used was, doing a multi-sig with like three cold cards, you know, do a two of three. Um, it'll cost you about $600, including the metal seed backups. Um, and that's rated infinite number of minutes against power tools. I mean, but even against like a laser, as far as we know today, there's just no uh, seed extraction attack that works on the latest version of the cold card. Um, and if you've got a pin, a passphrase, um, it's not accessible if you are dead, right? Like the the if the home invader kills you, they can't get the Bitcoin. And it might and now they're like, risking even more criminal charges. Yeah. And it might seem like, well, that's no consolation. You're dead. But it creates a disincentive, right? Because now the economics of the crime have changed. Uh, because there's no upside if you're dead. Uh, whereas with the uh, gold vaults, uh, there's still the same upside. Um, it has added the risk of, you know, the murder charge. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's that's a substantial effect, uh, especially, you know, if you live somewhere where there's a death penalty. Um, but the other thing is that you can plead the fifth. 
So, um, you know, the right to not self-incriminate would allow you to withhold your passphrase or your pin. And that means that the government would not be able to seize your Bitcoin, um, which is a significant advantage over the gold vault. Um, with the multi-sig, you can also put your uh, hardware wallets in different legal jurisdictions so that now governments have to go through process of international law to try to seize your Bitcoin. Um, and obviously that also makes it harder for the non-governmental thieves. Um, but to me, it's like uh, on this, just as with verification, like it's a slam dunk that Bitcoin just has far less uncertainty than gold does. Um, but I think that the, the challenge is always about the physicality, like they're, they're, you know, obsessed with the, uh, physical nature of, well, yeah, I, I didn't get to listen, um, to the whole debate, uh, but I got to listen to some and I was thoroughly unimpressed, uh, with, with Keith's argument. Um, it could be simply that, uh, I, I, I've heard these arguments too much rather than, uh, they're terrible, but I'm also pretty sure that they were terrible arguments. Um, one of the things that I noted, uh, was that in his arguments, he, he was he was basically comparing gold at scale with Bitcoin in its early stages of scaling. Um, and, and I think this is where your framing is just so important because we're trying to get to the heart of what money is and what are the incentives uh, towards people wanting to choose the money, whereas he's basically just saying, well, gold is already here, therefore it's just going to continue, um, which, you know, there is the nice Lindy, you know, side of that argument, but it, it, it doesn't, it, it's comparing apples and oranges if you're looking at, um, at, at those two, two different, you know, kind of stages, uh, shall we say. Yeah, and I, I also, like, the um, the historical argument of Bitcoin's been around for three years um, to me to th three thousand years is is kind of uh, I, I said it was uh, German historicism, not uh, Austrian uh, praxeology, which uh, is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that's it's uh, it's not an argument, <laughs> as, as some of our one of our favorite uh, um, you know libertarians would say, um, but. Um, you know, the the other one that um, Keith brought up a lot about volatility and I was thinking about, you know, kind of doing a retrospective on the debate. And I felt like after the fact that I conceded far too much ground on the question of future volatility um, because he was like, OK, you know, 21 million Bitcoin by design, Bitcoin is going to be volatile because the supply cannot adapt to the demand. And the sentence that I should have said that I failed to say, um, you know, maybe due to a lack of preparation, but also, frankly, I didn't have a whole lot of time uh, up on stage. I, you know, this is, this is stuff that I, that we can talk about for hours. Uh, you know, we had like a half hour. Um, but um, Bitcoin is volatile because adoption happens in waves and that we would expect that at full adoption, the volatility would look much different and would be, you know, much less than it has been historically. Uh, and Bitcoin goes down after it goes up too much. Right? So it's like 
Um, it's not like Bitcoin has volatility where, um, you know, it, it's, uh, for example, today, if it, were, it doesn't just go down to like $1,000 um, and then up to like $70,000 and then down to like $2,000. Like, it's not just like randomly, um, you know, uh, having heart attacks and, you know, uh, uh, bouncing all around, which is kind of the way that gold uh, proponents try to portray it of, oh, this is just like uh, randomly, um, you know, it's bipolar. It's not, but they don't look at the 200 day moving average, right? Of actually, you know, it's pretty much just going up uh, and uh, it's volatile on the way up. But as long as one participants in the market are knowledgeable about this and behave accordingly uh, in a rational manner by, not taking on leverage, uh, you know, by uh, kind of DCA accumulating for the long term, then that doesn't negatively affect them. Um, and furthermore, that um, long term, there's no reason why Bitcoin would have more volatility than gold. Right. And we can look at the gold market like it goes up and down. It's not crazy volatile like Bitcoin is, but it's also, you know, not increasing in value. Um, and, you know, I think that their argument on the gold side is that gold production can adapt to the gold price going up. And so, you know, gold producers increase their output of gold. But that is a very slow process. Like you can't just start mining more gold in 24 hours. Like it takes months, if not years, uh, for them to do that. And so um, in my mind, it's like, I, I don't like supply, the, the supply of uh, gold production from miners is very small compared to the supply of, you know, people who hold gold, who decide to sell it to earn capital gains or, you know, to rebalance their portfolio. And people make this argument against uh, the S2F, like having uh, argument of, Hey, look, at this point, miners selling is a very small percentage of the market. Um, but, you know, I think that that argument um, has some merits to it and has even more merits to it in the gold context. And when thinking about like long term volatility. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, of course, the quantity of money doesn't even need to change. Um, that that's that's you know been a, a long-standing Austrian theorem that you know any any supply of money, um, assuming that it can you know have all of those uh, uncertainty-reducing uh, qualities, is just fine. And so yeah. there's no there's no economic need for that to happen. That's just something that happens to happen with gold. And in fact, I would say that's in many ways like a demerit to gold. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he even made a joke is like, you know, uh, at Satoshi's expense, basically saying that, yo, Satoshi thinks he's so smart that he chose specifically 21 million, but it's like, you know, part of the reason that we like gold is because of all of the natural resources we had prior to Bitcoin, that was the one that could be closest to the thing that just doesn't have extra production. Um, and we actually, we like the fact that it's almost always 2% um, uh, production. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's almost wanting to take the, the, the enemy approach 
just to to dunk on the thing you don't like. Yeah, um, I, I was shocked when he said that uh, the the 21 million Bitcoin. How do we know that's the right number? I was like, th- isn't it just a central tenet of, you know, Austrian monetary theory that the exact number uh, doesn't really matter? It's more about kind of the ongoing monetary policy and, you know, artificially increasing the supply or decreasing it. <laughs> uh, right. But, um, you know, that's that's fine. He, uh, uh, you know, he's he's looking at it like a, a naturalistic, right, of uh, it's not organic. Right? It's, it's This is uh, created in a lab, which is a, a fair, like, uh, you know, pro-gold argument. I mean, I, I like natural law and, you know, you can you can go down that route of saying, uh, hey, this is man-made. It's it's no good. <laughs> right. Um, an, another thing that was, that was sort of brought up that that it, it grinds my gears is the insistence on Bitcoin being this purely speculative um, thing um, to which I'd point out one, all human action is speculative. Um, so we need to take that into account. But also, this is once again what I was saying, where, you know, we're looking at gold. Gold is fully sort of saturated, you know, um, it's it's it has its place in the world. Maybe with the fall of the dollar, we could see a resurgence in gold um, in, in some capacity. Um, but it's it's in this sort of order of magnitude of just where it is. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is extremely new and once again, you can go back to Menger and you can go back to Mises. These are not new ideas that in the early stages of money, just as you were saying earlier, there was an entrepreneurial um, attitude, uh, uh, an entrepreneurial speculation of looking at the facts on the ground, seeing what goods are available on the market and analyzing them and determining which one um, do you believe uh, will be most likely to be marketable in the future. And you do this at full scale too, because someday something could supplant gold. Um, I, I'm imagining, you know, uh, I don't know, were there people in like the 1890s who were saying, oh, nothing will ever supplant gold? Um, but, uh, you know, you still, even, even if there is a sort of uh, monetary maximized good, um, you still every day have to like, the reason you continue to demand it is because in the future, you think that it's going to have a value. This is the whole reason why the regression theorem is even a thing, because there's this there's this problem of like, if we're thinking into the future, well, how did it get to here? Like it had to start somewhere. But in any case, because of this, this fact, you know, entrepreneurs look at this and they start acquiring that which they think will have, um, you know, a, a mark- marketability, increased marketability um, in the future. And they both pointed out how in the early stages of monetization, which they don't really talk about too much because they already lived in a, in a fully monetized world. Um, and it wasn't until like 2009 that we finally got to uh, replay this game again. But they point out that hoarding and speculation is going to be a massive part of that because you're going to have a set of entrepreneurs who look at the market and they see the future potential before anyone else. We see this in every industry. You have the guy who saw, you know, what Apple would become or, you know, what steel 
would become, or, you know, you name it, you name the industry, you have a set of people who see what something can become. And those people have the natural incentive to then get as much as they possibly can. Um, and once again, we see this in every industry. This is how, this is how they, they find you no know, steel, steel is going to be the thing. Let me go stock up on steel and stock up on all of it. And this is just what we see with Bitcoin. And in the future, you know, this, this distribution will change. Um, and, and the, the marginal utility of holding Bitcoin will change. Um, but for now, that's not the case. And so there is a natural reason for people to hoard. And it's not because Bitcoin is bad money. Quite the contrary, it's because that many people believe Bitcoin is good money and that other people will believe so in the future. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, along this, <laughs> this angle of speculation, one of the arguments that I, I found really odd from Keith was that um, because gold's... Um, Gold's marginal price has been over the marginal cost of production that historically uh, people have always mined gold. And so that's reflective of the continued demand for gold. And in my mind, it's like, OK, there's two reasons for that. One, by the grace of God, uh, there's uh, lots of economically available gold in Earth's crust um, that, you know, if if there was very little of it such that, um, you know, today it would require $50,000 to mine an ounce of gold because it was just like all all had been extracted at the top levels and you had to dig really deep to get it, then nobody would mine gold. But, but I wouldn't consider that an argument against gold, right? I would actually think that's pretty good for gold, uh, that, that uh, you know, it's, it's, it's scarcer. Um, and second of all, it's kind of just uh, applauding gold miners for not being idiots in the sense that um, if, if gold miners always were running, uh, you know, their operations so that their marginal cost of production equaled the marginal price. And anytime the price of gold went down, gold production had to cease, then they would be incompetent, right? Because uh, they, they're just, they would be running massive losses all the time uh, and for, for, you know, uh, just because the gold price went down 1%. Um, so I, I didn't really find that argument to be particularly compelling. I mean, th the, the notion that like, yeah, there's there's lots of gold high up in Earth's crust in South Africa, like doesn't seem very persuasive to me as like, oh, and then he said Satoshi had so little confidence in Bitcoin that, you know, he did the opposite where uh, the quantity of Bitcoin being added to the ledger gets cut in half every four years. And so that's creating kind of um, artificially boosting Bitcoin's exchange rate. Um, which I mean, it's like, that's, that's great for Bitcoin. I don't, I don't know why that reflects a, a lack of confidence. You know, don't, would doesn't, isn't it rational for Satoshi to maximize the confidence that, you know, he wants to have in the system rather than uh, like nerfing it for a random reason? Well, and he pointed out like, well, if the price is skyrocketing, then, um, you know, a mortgage would just bankrupt you. <laughs> and it's amazing to see someone just so um, 
suffering of Stockholm syndrome by the fiat system that they are bemoaning how, how problematic going into debt can be, as opposed to saying, because the price is skyrocketing, if I acquire some for my work today, tomorrow, I'll just be able to afford the house and just buy it and not have to be someone's debt slave. Yeah. And, you know, he, he brought it up in the context of using Bitcoin as a unit of account. And, um, you know, I was after the debate, I was thinking about this, um, you know, one, uh, as I mentioned, like I, I shouldn't have conceded the point on volatility so strongly because I think that, you know, that affects the unit of account argument. But two, that even if Bitcoin has is continues to be hyper volatile, you know, as much as it has in the past. Um, you can still use it as a unit of account and very simply in the sense that you look at, do you hold more Bitcoin now than you did at the beginning of the month? Right. Um, that's kind of the uh, profit and loss uh, statement. Um, and that uh, the issue of um, it being too volatile as a unit of account, tying that to the issue of credit doesn't make sense to me. Um, and there's there's also no reason why we should favor credit over equity uh, in the financial system or in the economy at large. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the it, it's it's hard to like imagine um, what it's like if because OK, Bitcoiners talk about using Bitcoin as their unit of account. Right. And the opportunity cost of, okay, if I buy a coffee today instead of buying Bitcoin, then in five years, you know, if I, that's me spending $500, uh, you know, instead of spending $5, which is my perception today. Um, but that's a really, it's such a hard argument for people to understand that I still hear Bitcoiners talk about how, oh, it doesn't make sense to spend your Bitcoin. You should spend your fiat instead. It's like, no, that's the same opportunity cost. Yeah, just don't don't spend. Yeah. Or, or also yeah. the people who who hear that and they think, oh, see, you're still pricing in dollars. And it's it's like, no, 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 no. Dollars is just currently, it is the way that people already do it. So you can assess your purchasing power in dollars. So as a proxy, instead of having to reprice everything against the entire economy, I can just look at Bitcoin and do the simple calculation of, you know, how many dollars per Bitcoin. So it's not really it's 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 still it's looking at the purchasing power not the raw dollar amount in fact you know i'm i'm not i'm not going to be happy if uh you know oh bitcoin's a million dollars uh but a million dollars can't even buy you a, a, a dozen eggs you know I, the bitcoin probably still helped you given that that situation um but what we're really thinking about is the purchasing power ultimately um did you, did you have something else on that? Yeah, I was going to say that, um, you know, some of the critics of Bitcoiners and Bitcoin maximalists say that, like, we're anti-credit. And in my mind, it's like, it's not so much that I'm anti-credit in theory. Like, I, you know, the financial intermediation liability is like, I'm an accountant. Like, that's th those are fine tools. I'm just saying that, in a Bitcoin economy, if you are pro credit and you are, you know, creating credit, you're going to get wrecked. And it's like that the the it's got uh there's like an economic reason to be anti credit. Now there's also a moral and ethical reason 
but we don't even have to get into that. Uh, although I think those are actually stronger than the economic argument. Right. Uh, but, you can point yeah. out how, you know, because of money printing and, you know, all the operations of the Fed, we are pushed more towards credit and away from savings. And Bitcoiners are saying in a Bitcoin world, we could expect us to be pushed back more towards saving than with credit. In fact, probably even more so than under a gold economy. But that's not inherently saying no credit. It's just saying that the balance has been askew because of fiat. And with, with Bitcoin, we would, we would expect less. Um, and, and there's all kinds of other arguments you can bring up with the whole uh, tiresome fractional reserve uh, arguments that ha have been dead since 2009. So um, I, I don't even know if it's worth going into. Something else I wanted to say, though, was, you know, some of the arguments you hear from, from the gold people remind me of Keynesians in relation to deflation. So one of the things with deflation is Keynesians look at that and they say, oh, no, no one is going to eat. We're all going to starve because people are just going to be investing instead of um, and saving instead of spending. And so no one's going to go get dinner, um, which is absurd on its face. And the clear argument, though, is that in a sound money economy, a hard money economy, if you're experiencing price deflation, it's because the economy as a whole is growing. And so that purchasing power of those units of money are increasing because of real economic growth. It's not just, it's not by fiat. It's not just made up. Um, and similarly, with this kind of gold argument against Bitcoin volatility, if we go all the way back to hedging future uncertainty, there are times where I am more uncertain about the future and I am going to acquire more monetary units. There are times where I am more certain about the future and so I don't need as many, as many monetary units. And in fact, from this perspective, money is, quote, productive in the sense of there's a reason why people hold a cash balance, and it's exactly that. And sometimes people want a higher cash balance. Some people want a lower cash balance. It's going to be different for every person. Um, and when we have, even if Bitcoin remained highly volatile in a fully Bitcoin, Bitcoinized world, I would view that as a good thing, because that, what that says is that the monetary system is responding dynamically to people's actual economic needs. It means that you are going through periods of time where the economy as a whole tends to feel more certain about the future and doesn't have as much need to hold a cash balance. And if the price goes up, it's because the economy as a whole has started to feel that the future is a little more uncertain and they should hold more Bitcoin. And that's perfectly fine. Um, there's, there's no inherent issue with that kind of uh, volatility. And as you pointed out earlier, if you're trying to stabilize that, you get all of the problems that Mises talks about. Um, and th this, is, this is actually what he points to as kind of the, the um, original sin, so to speak, is to believe that stability is a concept in economics at all, because it is not. Um, and so when you don't allow the, the monetary system to fluctuate, um, and, in, and in fact, with Bitcoin, because it has a fixed supply, it really just it is it is pure signal. It actually doesn't have that leakage from from other things going on. It gives the pure signal of um, how people are using wanting cash balances and not and, and how they're responding to economic uh, prices. It's a very good thing. 
Um, and so it, we can think of times in which deflation as a concept is a bad thing. If the Federal Reserve just started lighting dollars on fire, um, Joker style, um, that would actually be probably a very negative thing for the economy because you're you're effectively fighting fire with fire, and you're you're just you know digging yourself in deeper with with more fiat um, responses to the fiat problems. But we can also have this deflation where it's because of natural economic processes. And I think this is exactly the same where um, he's thinking about stability in terms of uh, fiat-induced stability or uh, volatility versus natural economic stability or uh, volatility. And I have no problem with the latter because people need to be able to, the, the beauty of the market is that it's a dynamic system and we're not creating more uncertainty. We're not creating more um, problems by trying to artificially supply stability. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and I, I made the point too that like, if you want to have a system that is trying to have a stable value, then inherently it's going to be centralized, right? Because now you have to have humans involved and measuring the value and all of that um the other the the last point was on uh the the cost of uh sending gold versus bitcoin um and i so i did some research uh before the debate of like okay well i know that shipping gold is has to be expensive <laughs> so how, how expensive is it um and what i found was that um, if you are shipping less than $100,000 worth of gold, what's recommended is using registered mail through the U.S. Postal Service. If you're shipping over $100,000, it's recommended that you use a service like um, the the Brinks, you know, uh, armored car type service. Um, and USPS registered mail costs 0.1% of the value that you're shipping. Um, now, after I made this argument, Keith said that they use FedEx. Um, and I've read everywhere, don't use FedEx. So I was kind of like, uh, do, do I get into this with him? Like, I mean, I guess he knows more about gold shipping than I do, but it seems odd to me that everyone's telling me I don't use FedEx and uh, Keith is telling me that he uses FedEx. Um, yeah, it's also just scary. Not only not only is it like centralized, but actually that physicality, every step of the way. I mean, how much of the the old west tales? It's because people get you know robbed, trains and and carriages and yeah, uh, all that. And every step of the way, there's there's something that could happen. Um, and in fact, like I've had trouble sending like postcards through USPS, let alone actual money. You know. Yeah. So registered mail is it, it tries to solve for that. So it's got like a very strong audit trail where every postal service employee along the way who handles the package, if they lose the package and, you know, they're found to have like stolen or whatever, um, they lose their pension and they get like charged criminally and all this. So you're really relying on a subsidy from the government of, hey, you know, we're, we're going to like, you know, uh, really hammer somebody if they 
uh, do something wrong in, with this registered mail. Uh, so it requires threats of violence. Oh, extreme keep, gold. Yeah, so extreme so gold threat. mining involves like all kinds of uh, inhumane yeah. practices, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, d and then even just to chemicals move it. the environment. Uh, in the gold mining process is terrible for the environment. M meanwhile, with Bitcoin, besides the costs, I mean, just think of the the incredible nature of being able to package something up in a digital signature. That thing is immutable. Um, uh, you know, we no longer even have transaction malleability if you use SegWit, um, and but although that's like a separate issue, but like you, you package it up in that digital signature and you can send it out. If it gets lost, that stinks, but you can just resend it. There's no way that it gets lost and someone like, you know, captures it and does perform some kind of man in the middle on it to remove it. Um, so it really is that, that peer to peer system. And I, I think the only way that comes to mind that you would, you would break that is if you have a, um, extremely powerful, a quantum computer um, to the point that you could just break the Bitcoin system. And then when you see someone sign a transaction, you could, you know, go in and, and break that signature and, and change it and sign it according to your own signature and um, send it to yourself. But yeah. the point is, it's like, that's what it, it takes. That, you, yeah. That's you what just, they, they require threats of violence in this entire, this entire supply chain of just think of think of all of the resources that go into just making that happen um and, and what it took to just you know the all of those people along the way they have a whole story of their own uh yeah <laughs> their whole I mean, lives came up to this point just so they could move move some gold for you and meanwhile with bitcoin you just sign it and send it and it's it's done yeah and the registered mail it takes like one to two weeks <laughs> uh the bitcoin transaction you know get in the next block in 10 minutes um also with the registered mail uh business hours <laughs> business days uh you know with, bitcoin, with, bitcoin never sleeps never sleeps um and then it's like trusting your own ver software versus trusting the u.s government <laughs> right right you know with, with the bitcoin software um you know, with a little bit of programming experience, which obviously that's a lot to ask of, of a lot of people, but it is accessible. And, uh, you know, if you go through like Jimmy Song's programming Bitcoin course, or you do the B base 58 course, you can come out of that with a very strong, like uh, feeling and understanding of how Bitcoin works at every step of the way, from the very foundational field mathematics that ECDSA is built on, to how the actual signatures work, to how blocks are are you know uh, put together and how they're how they're um, serialized and all of that. Same with transactions, and you can go through that whole process and actually have a working understanding for, of Bitcoin from the ground up, and really have really know what's going on. Um, whereas you know, uh, it kind of what I was saying with like the gold and everyone has a story. It's like uh, you know, I pencil. You know, it's so hard to even understand how a pencil. Uh, is made, let alone how your gold manages to, to get to someone. Um, but I can have a pretty fair understanding. Obviously, I, there's, there's limits to my understanding of, of all the actual underlying computer networking um, that's going on. But you can have much greater certainty of actually knowing that Bitcoin is doing what you want than hoping that the guy at the post office, um, who I, I can't say th those, those people are at the top of my 
um, uh, competency list. <laughs> you just well, have to hope that it all goes well. And if not, the government will come beat them up. So it's fine. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, the the other problem with physical shipping is that um, the the your is you you have to give your physical address as the last stop, right? So yeah. Um, whereas like with Bitcoin, the Bitcoin address, I mean, first of all, just in a vacuum, it's a pseudonymous random numbers and letters. Second of all, if there's multi-sig, like you don't even know that it's necessarily at that person's house, right? Like, um. But with with gold, uh, it's it is where it ends up. <laughs> I think I think you pointed out before that uh, you have to open the vault too. You have to actually physically open the gold vault to put the gold in, yeah. which means that for a split amount of time, this is like every heist movie. Uh, you know, can teach us all of these all of these flaws with gold gold delivery and gold storage um, and Bitcoin. You don't have to do that. Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, ruins the heist movie. Um, I, I still do want like Rodolfo to make a series of maybe a mini series of uh, heists um, and they all just end really poorly for the <laughs> uh, criminal, uh, either in jail or dead or just failed. <laughs> or, or here's another, even if even if it succeeds, the difference between gold and Bitcoin is that because Bitcoin doesn't, it isn't encumbered by that as much of that physicality, it can adapt more. So a single person, you know, uh, having, having a, uh, a, a negative incident happen to them is a signal to the rest of the economy of how they should improve. Um, now, I don't want anyone to have those negative uh, experiences happen to them, but that, it, that does show a sort of anti-fragile um, side of, of Bitcoin, where, you know, one person has a certain kind of physical attack on them. Now, everyone else, assuming that that story gets out, knows, oh, this is how I need to patch up my security. Whereas with gold, how do you, how, how fast does gold security improve? You know, what, what, were, the, what were the last, maybe there's like weird conferences, um, well, where there's all I mean, kinds of like boomer salesmen that sell you like the latest tech. Like how 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 slow is that development uh, as opposed to what Bitcoin is capable of? It, to me, it comes down to the fact that the U.S. military defends Fort Knox, right? Like, so the most advanced. If there's anything in there, we don't even. <laughs> okay. We don't even know. Michael, Stephen Mnuchin went inside. He saw it. Uh, what are you talking about? Why would you ever doubt Stevie's audit of the uh, gold of Fort Knox? Um, but it's seriously that like the equilibrium outcome for gold is that um, the world superpower puts it all into one vault in Kentucky or wherever that is. Um, and that's like the uh, epitome of gold security is, um, you know, ICBM nuclear warheads. Right. Which, again, goes back to, OK, you start off with. Uh, just disastrous environmental impacts of gold mining. Then you have the U.S. Postal Service employees with guns to their heads to uh, ship your gold. And then finally, uh, the ultimate in gold security is mutually assured destruction. <laughs> it's just like destroy all humanity. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm coming around to the uh, barbarous relic view.
Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you one counterpoint, which is <laughs> that the the end game of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is secured by uh, the heat death of the universe, um, turning turning the entire universe into just like pure proof of work entropy. Um, but it does it on a much much slower uh, time scale. It's not gonna it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, and you're you're assuming no divine intervention. Uh, no. So I think that you're in a classical physics model. Yeah, well, and and also, I mean, think about it this way: we 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 could model out that timeline, whereas tomorrow someone could hit the nuke button, and we don't know. So there's once again, it brings us back to the uh, certainty and uncertainty. I have two more questions for you. They're very related. One is, what was the best argument um, given, and two. Um, because I, I have my skepticism that the very best argument was supplied um, in this debate, uh, what would be um, your best argument for gold? Yeah, um, so the best argument he made is really about um, kind of th the... I mean, I don't know if this is really even a, 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 an argument, really, but that like people know gold, right? So uh, that you, because it's a physical object, um, that it's more uh, comprehensible to people. Um, whereas Bitcoin, it's got a good brand. yeah, Bitcoin's not only, um, even if Bitcoin had the same brand as gold, it's still software, right? That, and that's just inherently, more to wrap your head around than just a hunk of metal on your desk. Um, now, uh, I think the best argument for gold is really the, and specifically in the context of this prompt, it would be that gold has remained as an important form of money despite the dollar being the world reserve currency and the dollar being you know it has competed against gold rather successfully for for many of the same reasons and so for example the cost of independently verifying a hundred dollar bill is much lower than the cost of verifying a brick of gold right like so um you know you, you've got some some and also the the cost of doing a wire transfer of uh you know, from one bank to another bank, um, you know, same kind of arguments, uh, you know, obviously we, we, we could compare that to Bitcoin as well. And Bitcoin has still come out ahead. The biggest flaw for the dollar is this uncertainty around the supply. Right. And that's where, you know, you, you could make the argument for gold that um, it's complementary to Bitcoin and that both it, Bitcoin could be 10 times bigger than gold. And gold would still be an important form of money. And you, you'll hear um, Bitcoin proponents say that um, Bitcoin is going to demonetize gold first. Well, arguably, it's going to demonetize gold last or um, it won't demonetize it ever fully. Um, and that, you know, it's going to grow bigger than gold, but it's not going to ultimately like destroy gold, at, uh, gold's monetary premium entirely. Um, 
So that, in my mind, would be the strongest argument on the affirmative is that, um, you know, both can, well, gold can, uh, you know, go sideways and Bitcoin can win. And it's still, you know, it, it, gold still wins the argument of being an important form of money in the 21st century. Right. It, it could still be the case that in the future, a, a, a prudent investor would still have some amount of his portfolio, even if it's 1% um, in, in gold. And if 1% of the Bitcoin economy has a portfolio in gold, that's still pretty important. That's, that's yeah. a nice, nice now, large chunk of the economy. I think it's the best argument for gold, and I don't find it particularly <laughs> persuasive. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, gold buggery will, will just be a, a, a mental illness, like like hoarding cheeseburger wrappers <laughs> in your apartment. Like it's not uh, uh, a rational uh, thing, but, uh, you know, that's a fine argument for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it'll be like... Yeah. Um, well, and uh, on the branding one, um, you know, in the physical thing, you know, uh, a, a counter argument to that is um, I'm also told that Bitcoin is a religion. And it seems to me that religions have done very well without having a physical nature and only having, you know, physical representations. Um, so, Perhaps that's really not a an issue at all um, if if we're going to take that religion meme seriously, or if we just take a a softer view that there's there's similar mimetic, um, you know, uh, mimetics in general um, yeah. has has some cachet. So that reminds me of an argument that I thought was very valid from Keith, which was that um, um, I I said you know if gold is demonetized, then it's only utility would be like uh, for electronics or as jewelry. And Keith mentioned that, um, you know, even in the jewelry case, like that does represent um, like monetary reserve demand for gold. And so um, even if it's the case that nobody is holding gold in Fort Knox or in gold vaults or in gold ETFs, right? There's no like, using it uh, as a store of value like that, but that gold actually becomes very widely distributed as jewelry um, and kind of as a status symbol, that that would still represent a like above ground supply of gold that is not being consumed, uh, that is behaving as kind of a um, uh, money for women. <laughs> I'm going to get canceled for that. <laughs> well, that's like, a, that's like a, a nice sounding argument. But at the same time, I mean, that's just like the same as people saying it was like, well, there's lots of stores of value yeah. because people, people, that's just saying like, you know, any, any non-consumer good is somehow this like store of value and therefore a monetary good. So like every factory is also has a monetary premium and like every piece of capital it's, um, you know, I have I have some old computer parts sitting around like that's that's a that's a store of value because they're not being consumed. They're just kind of sitting there. Um, and so we should all invest in old silicon, although I don't know, maybe uh, with everything that could go on with Taiwan and such, maybe that maybe that's true. And we're going to live in the sort of Blade Runner uh, world looking for uh, all kinds of chips and stuff in uh, the garbage. But um, the, the point is, is, you know, it's a cope. It, it, it's very much a cope and there's still going to be one store of value 
that consumes them all. And that actually like, you know, uh, you know, maybe Beanie Babies still have a lot of value for like one guy. Um, <laughs> but you're, when, when you're, when you're looking for a monetary good to hold on for yourself for the future, especially the long future, especially multi-generational future, you have to think not in terms of just what, what you think kind of holds some value for you, um, um, today, but you, you, you want to think about what is good for all people at all times. And, And that goes back to, you know, you want to reduce, you want to look for the thing that reduces uncertainty kind of over, over the biggest possible matrix. Um, of, of possibilities. And, um, you know, just, just because, you know, oh, people wear jewelry. That's just, that's not enough to power an economy. That's enough to look pretty. It is. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of, let's say, gold's market cap, right? One could imagine that uh, gold would have the same market cap that it currently has except that it would be in the form of jewelry rather than gold bars, which really relies on what is the marginal utility, marginal demand for gold as jewelry, um, because clearly it's not high enough today for that to be the case, right? Otherwise, um, you know, it would be the case. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's kind of an argument of like, people's tastes are going to change in the future and they're really going to value gold jewelry a lot more than they currently do. And that's going to offset the drop in monetary demand. Oh, and how, how much of the gold jewelry is because it just looks pretty. How much of it is because they actually like the, the quality of the material and how much of it is because it gives a certain signal that rests its laurels on the fact that gold is this historically valued thing. Um, so there's also getting the, the, the causality backwards there as well. And one other point I'd make on the jewelry is that to the, to the point of the quality, if you have all of this gold just locked up in in jewelry, that's actually, I, 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 I'm not a chemist, but that to me seems like it'll make it even harder to do, um, a saying for gold, because when you make gold jewelry, you necessarily, uh, turn it into an alloy because gold is way too malleable. Uh, to be used as as uh, just you know pure gold as jewelry. So um, suddenly you have you necessarily have all kinds of metals uh, mixed into it. And uh, when you go to like smelt it and stuff, it's just like it's going to be a much harder process to figure out is like how much gold is in it. And then you have to have you know a guy with one of those like monocle uh, uh, you know binocular monocular is that what it's called? Uh, like you know kind of looking inspecting at it and telling you. Uh, maybe you'll be on Antiques Roadshow or pawn shop shows or something. But like, uh, once again, it's just like, that's that's not a way to power the economy. And, and the more that's in jewelry, it just becomes even harder to do all of that assessment at scale. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree on that. All right. Um, maybe this is a, a good point to uh, leave off on uh, is uh, jewelry, unless you, you had uh, some other uh, gold related content. No, no. Um, I'm I am Bitstein these days, uh, more so than Goldstein. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I hold on to the name because uh, the, the historical family value, but certainly not because I, I believe that it represents um, future monetary value. It's just future family value, but not future monetary value. Um, Goldstein is Lindy. 
for yes. sure. So anyway, uh, pleasure talking to you. And uh, I'm, I'm actually now concerned that you got the L and it sounds like we have uh, a lot more evangelizing to do and a lot more education. Yeah. Um, so I think that itself is a signal and yeah. um, we have, we're very we have work on our hands. Yeah, we're, we got work on our hands. Um, you know, I, I did get 20% of the vote. Um, and I also got comments afterwards from people saying like they, they voted against me, but that I made arguments that they'd never heard before and that they found really interesting. Um, so I think that just from like an inception point of view, um, you know, planting some seeds that then in the bull market, you know, watering those seeds, maybe they will FOMO in and, uh, actually go down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, the other thing, though, is that I, I hope that it causes some of the Austrian school economists and scholars to um, put some more thought into like, uh, OK, what what about this uncertainty minimization uh, aspect of money and um, kind of going down that rabbit hole? So maybe some additional research there would would be really interesting to see. And it certainly calls into question um, certain beliefs about democracy. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the truth, folks, is not democratic. <laughs> yeah, you can't vote on the truth, everyone. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that the result would have been very different if the prompt had been more neutral of mm -hmm. like, can Bitcoin succeed? OK, then now we're like uh, on steady footing rather than is Bitcoin going to destroy gold? A very aggressive stance. Right, right, right. Especially when we're even saying that there is a possibility that you you have some sort of equilibrium where gold is still important. Yeah. So in a way, your argument is not even fully in the negative. No, and I, I did try to keep it in the fully in the negative just to be a good um, sport. And I will say, you know, Keith was a good sport as well. And I really enjoyed uh, sparring with him intellectually. Um, so I, I hope that we have uh, gold debates again in the future. Absolutely. All well, right. Until next time. Until next, next year. Time. Yeah, next year. <laughs> Cheers, Michael. Bye. Have a good one.